Hello, and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines. People just like you, working to understand viruses and how they affect you. While our podcast has focused on researchers involved in coronavirus-related research over the past year, we are also interviewing researchers who study other viruses so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackeray, and I'm hosting this podcast from America's heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. On April 14th, 2021, we talked with Dr. Sebastian Felt, postdoctoral researcher in the Lopez Lab at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, who studies DVGs, or defective viral genomes. Sebastian received his PhD in biological sciences at University of Northern Carolina at Charlotte, where he studied how to use an oncolytic virus, vesicular stomatitis virus, as part of treatments for pancreatic cancer. In the Lopez lab, he is focused on finding virus and host factors that regulate the generation of DVGs of respiratory syncytial virus, a virus that causes significant pediatric respiratory disease. Hi, Sebastian. I'm happy to have you with us today. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you become interested in virology? Okay, thanks for having me. Um, so I'm originally from uh, Vienna, the capital of Austria, um, where I lived for 16 years. Um, and at 16, I moved to France to train at a tennis academy. Actually, my first passion was tennis, and I wanted to become a, a professional tennis player. And at um, 18, kind of had a... Um, a discussion with with my parents and my coaches and kind of decided that this will not work out the the way I want it and kind of decided that the next step for me would be to go to university and to study and one of my favorite classes in school for a long time was biology I always thought biology was very interesting and it was a field that was advancing really quickly and it was always uh, very interesting uh, stuff about it in the news, like new discoveries and, and things like that. And so I did my first year of my bachelor's in biology at the University of Nîmes. In, it's, a, it's a city in the south of France. And uh, finished my, my first year. It was, it was a great, great time. And, um, but realized that I kind of still missed the, the tennis aspect. I really liked science and the mixture of also being able to play tennis. And then I found out in the United States, they had this uh, student athlete system. Would you be able to get a degree and play tennis? And so I started looking into universities in the United States. And I found a university in Georgia called Georgia Southern University in Statesboro, Georgia, uh, where I was able to finish my bachelor's in biology and play tennis at the same time. And while I was there, um, I got interested in virology because in 2009, when I moved to the United States, uh, was the H1N1 uh, pandemic. And uh, that's all they talked about in TV is about uh, influenza. And uh, we talked about it in class and just viruses really started to fascinate me because they were such... Uh, small simplistic entities that had the ability to just adapt and evolve and change rapidly to their environment. And I just thought it was very fascinating. And so I decided after my bachelor's to look for a PhD program and apply to different universities. And then after an interview with uh, Valeri Gritzelishvili uh, in UNC Charlotte, um, I decided to join his lab uh, 
in UNC Charlotte, where I studied vesicular stomatitis virus um, as an oncolytic virus against pancreatic cancer. And so for five years, uh, I studied there kind of the interaction between VSV and pancreatic cancer, so virus-host interactions. I went into kind of cell death pathways, virus attachments, et cetera, et cetera. And um, after I finished my PhD there, um, even though it was kind of a mix of a PhD of like virus and cancer, I still wanted to continue to do virology because, again, I just thought it was a very fascinating topic. And I remembered in 2016, I went to an ASV conference and I'd seen Carolina Lopez give a talk about uh, defective viral genomes. And I just thought it was very interesting to me. Again, it was something I'd read in textbooks and I thought very fascinating, uh, but never really thought too much about it. And just talking to her, I just thought, wow, this is a really cool topic and I would really want to study this more. And so I interviewed with Carolina and joined her lab and have been three years with her in UPenn. And now she recently moved to WashU and I've been now about a year here. And that's pretty much my journey all the way to St. Louis. Yeah, yeah. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of the, the project that you're working on now? What are these defective sort of interfering particles or genomes? Um, and sort of there's actually an old history associated with mm-hmm. this. So maybe just tell, tell us a little bit like about them generally and then more specifically what you have been working on. Yes. So, yeah. So in our lab, we're very focused on defective viral genomes. So like you said yourself, uh, these have been studied since the 1940s. They actually have been extensively studied, 1940s, 1950s. But at some point, there was kind of a, a limitation in methodology of how to study them. And I think um, a lot of people stopped studying them and thought it was just a cell culture artifact and not really relevant to virus pathogenesis. And so it was a really long break. And then um, uh, later on, 1990s, 2000s, I think there was really this big emergence in defective viral genome research again. And Carolina, my PI, is is one of the, the scientists really focusing on that. And um, there are, it's also important to know that there's a variety of defective viral genomes. So for example, we study on, we study copyback DVG. So these are defective viral genomes where the polymerase basically uh, replicates the virus and the polymerase drops off, which we call a breakpoint, and then rejoins on the nascent strand to copy it back and gives this kind of hairpin loop uh, structure. But there's also deletion the eyes and other types of uh, defective viral genomes. And I think really the overall definition of a defective viral genome is if it doesn't have the ability to replicate by itself. So it always needs the actual full-length virus to be able to replicate. So in our lab, we're very focused on copyback DVGs. Uh, Carolina, even before I joined the lab, had heavily focused on Sendai virus, which is a mouse model for uh, paramyxoviruses but also recently had transitioned to uh, respiratory syncytial virus, which is RSV for short. And uh, this was previously paramyxovirus, but a couple of years ago it was switched to being a pneumovirus, but we've also been studying RSV and RSV makes tons of copyback DVGs uh, in cell culture. And we have been studying these and found that the presence of copyback DVGs uh, short-term can be very antiviral because it's very immunostimatory, but actually long-term can lead to persistence, which just overall seems to play an important role in virus pathogenesis. 
But most recently, the, the paper and project you were talking about, we basically found copyback DVGs uh, in nasal washes of uh, infants infected with RSV, but also infants, uh, but also sorry, adults uh, infected with RSV, and just found there was basically a, a nice correlation of the kinetics of defective viral genome generation and how these infants or adults would do clinically speaking. So basically, the clinical outcome. So to get into that a little bit more. Um, you know, a lot of times with these mechanisms, you kind of think about like, how would this benefit the virus? How would this benefit the host? Like, and so can you talk a little bit about this? Like, so how do the DVGs, like, why would, in a way, if you think about it sort of anthropomorphically, I guess, why would the virus want to make DVGs? Or why does the host want the virus to make DVGs? That, that's a great question, because actually that's, that's, that's one question that has been bugging me since uh, I joined Carolina's lab, because I would say really kind of two, two major focuses of the lab and, and my major focuses too. On one hand, we're trying to understand more and more the role of defective viral genomes in pathogenesis. That's one thing. But on the other hand, what I've also been working on is to try to find virus factors and host factors that regulate defective viral genomes. So of course, this is important uh, to understand virus biology. And of course, it's important to understand virus pathogenesis and also the clinical aspect of, of virus V. But what I'm kind of hoping with these two kind of fields and questions uh, advancing is that we could apply this knowledge to start asking evolutionary questions. So for example, if you'll be able to find viruses that, for example, make more or less DVGs, we could start, you know, making, for example, competition experiments where we can address short-term and long-term are the advantages or disadvantages for these viruses to make DVGs. Because I think that's also the complexity of it. It's always this kind of short-term versus long-term. Because again, the very often when we talk about this in, in conferences, this kind of this contradictory message how short-term it seems to be antiviral because it's kind of inhibiting the replication of the virus, but long-term, at least in cell culture that we have shown so far, is it actually can lead to persistence. So it's kind of, it inhibits it at first, but long-term it can lead to persistence. So this is a great question. This is something that I'm very interested in. And I think really everything what we do in the lab kind of leads towards hopefully being able to answer those questions. And also remember, remember when I joined the lab, we always talked about, and I think this is something that's slowly changing in the lab. We always talked about error, the error of making a copyback DVG, but is it an error? That's the question. Is it just ingrained in the biology of the virus to make those copyback DVGs? Right. So I guess to follow up on that, you're sort of proposing that the virus may actually be regulating this process. It's not just sort of like an accident, that there might be some regulatory mechanisms where you know, there's a certain timing or a certain place or something like that where DVGs are beneficial to the virus in whatever spread, pathogenesis, transmission, who knows what. And then even for the host, that the host might be okay with a lot of DVGs at certain periods of time, but it may actually have um, proteins it uses or mechanisms it uses to kind of change, you know, what's happening in the virus. Yeah, that's that's correct. I think at this, at this stage, I mean, we have a lot of lot of data um, suggesting in this direction, but this is what's happening. But at this stage, I think it's also a lot of hypothesizing and, and, and speculating what we think is happening. But but I would agree on both sides. I really think it's a mixture of like virus factors and host factors, because for example, in our, our most recent paper, 
One of the cohorts was an adult cohort where uh, they were experimentally infected with uh, RSVA and every single adult got the exact same virus. So the same virus sequence and everything, but we still saw that certain patients, adult patients had DVGs, certain patients did not have DVGs, certain patients had DVGs at different speeds. So clearly if they were all infected with the same sequence of the virus and they had different DVG outcomes, I think it would strongly suggest there's something host-driven in the selection of DVGs. But then also in the infants is also what we're looking at is of course every, every infant has in a, in a natural infection is infected with different strains, a and B, but even within A and within B, there's different slide variations of it. So this is also something we'd like to look at if there are certain mutations that correlate with these children having DVGs or not. So I really think, I think it's a mixture of both um, at this point. And I guess to, we uh, actually, the previous podcast, we were talking to someone who uh, works with like the nasal microbiome. So have you mm-hmm thought about looking at whether there's in fact sort of a environmental determinant of DVGs, because you can envision that that might be, especially for RSV, that might be actually sort of determining sort of host immunity and how essentially necessary or sort of controlled the DVGs are. Yeah, that's, that, that's a great question. Yeah, there's, there's, I think, so many, so many things to to look into. Just, I always, always feel like you know we answer one question and we have generated ten new questions because, of course, when you look at the the nose microbiome, is the question of the presence of other viruses, the question of presence of other bacteria, is, for example, making DVGs somehow an advantage for let's say RSV while being co-infected with flu and somehow outcompeting flu because of the DVGs. Um, there is the question of RSV, of course, we were all infected with RSV for a lifetime. So is there any like, you know, um, uh, IgG or any type of memory in, in the nose that makes it more likely to have DVGs or not? Also, another question that's always uh, in our mind uh, is, of course, these are nasal washes, but a lot of the tropism of the disease is in the lungs. So, of course, something we've always thought about, maybe asked this in the, in the mice experiment context of like, how does the population look different in lungs versus nose? So yeah, lots and lots of questions to think about. And we're really excited to, to keep looking and digging deeper into that direction. Yeah. So can you actually talk a little bit about that? Do you have a small animal model to look at these DVGs for RSV? And how does that, how do those experiments look like? In a way? I mean, it sounds like you have human cohorts that you can run, but obviously it's hard to do mechanistic studies on them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, of course, of course, that's for sure a limitation. So again, we work with two, two viruses majorly in the lab with Sendai virus and RSV, but with other projects now being started, for example, with a postdoc working with LCMB, for example. But Sendai, for example, is quite easy. It's a mouse model. So we have a very nice mouse model to study Sendai and the role of copybacked DVGs in the context of Sendai. RSV is a little bit trickier. Mouse models are not that great. Um, so it's something we're always, you know, looking to, to dig deeper into or to find collaborators or start, you know, brainstorming about what would be a, a good animal model in the, in the context of RSV. So for sure, uh, this is uh, this is uh, challenging and something to think about. Uh, but it's also interesting how I think through this this recent project, the clinical project, we learned a lot because previously 
the way we would assess the role of copyback DVGs in vitro and in mice is by creating two different types of stocks. One stock would have uh, absence of copyback DVGs, which we call LD stocks, so low DVG. And then we will generate high DVG stocks, so HD stocks. And generally what we would do is we'll basically infect with these stocks and we'll clearly see drastic differences between these two stocks and in mice, no matter if you talk about Sendai or no matter if we talk about RSV. But now what we learned through this particular uh, project is that it's very uh, kinetic dependent. So for example, we found in adults, at least in experimentally infected adults, that if copyback DVGs appear, let's say in the first three days, um, these copyback DVG would be extremely inhibitory and there will be almost no virus or severe symptoms in its patients. And when you think about it, this is very similar to our LDHD condition, but we've been doing all these years. Yeah. However, if the DVGs show up much later, like let's say post the peak of infection, like so seven, the day eight or nine, so post day seven, uh, we don't see this protection anymore. So, so we learned a lot through the clinic to reapply now back to cell culture in mouse. And we're realizing it's not as, as simple of black and white and like just add them at the beginning and see what happens. It's also a question of kinetics of when you're adding it. Right, right. Cool. Um, so I guess uh, thinking a little bit more um, generally, um, you know, you've been in a couple of different labs. What has been the most exciting moment in your career so far? Whew, most exciting moment. So I think it's difficult to pick a most, most, um, most exciting one. So I think I have one exciting, uh, one very exciting, I'd say in my PhD lab and one very exciting one in my postdoc lab. So in my PhD lab, for sure, my first publication, I think it was really exciting just yeah. to get into science, start doing science, work really hard, have many failures, but then also some like, you know, wins of like what works and what doesn't work. And so for sure, the first publication was really great memory. I remember that. And then in uh, my current postdoc lab with, with Carolina, um, I think uh, for sure uh, this current publication we just got out. I mean, it was, um, I have to mention, so, so Jan Sun was a postdoc in Carolina's lab. She's now an assistant professor at the University of Rochester. She had started this project. And then I joined the project. And then we moved to WashU and I continued by myself uh, this, this project. And it was just a huge collaboration of, again, we're 16 scientists, uh, free collaborators. It was just an enormous, very challenging project. And just seeking this through to the end was just really an, a difficult but amazing journey. So I think that for sure was very exciting to get this done. Cool. Yeah. And I guess, uh, conversely, what's been the most difficult thing you've had to overcome as a scientist so far? And how did you overcome it? So... Again, kind of both in my PhD labs and postdoc labs. So PhD labs, of course, was to, to just to get started with research, get familiar with the whole, you know, mechanism of how to do it and, and the approach and everything. So that, that was that was challenging for sure. One thing that my PhD lab and my postdoc lab have in common that we I, I studied two fields that were not, I wouldn't say too well accepted, but not super popular. So for example, my PhD lab was studying oncolytic viruses, which I feel like in the cancer field, there was a bit of resistance. In the virus field, there was kind of a bit suspicion if it's going to really work. So I kind of felt always when I go into conferences and talk about it, a lot of resistance towards the field. And the same with, with uh, defective viral genomes in Carolina's lab. So 
uh, very often when we present about them, I think it's always very difficult to convince virologists that it's defective viral genomes but drive the phenotype and not the viruses themselves. And this was for sure a, a challenge in the, the current project, um, the clinical project we're talking about, because every single time we were um, uh, correlating defective viral genomes with uh, outcome, a lot of the time questions of, of people or reviewers were like, are you sure it's not the virus? Are you sure it's the defective viral genomes driving this pathogenesis? Um, so I think that that was challenging in both of these labs, kind of always trying to convince convince people um, that what we're showing um, is relevant uh, in, in the field. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that can be challenging. Um, yeah. And then I guess if you had a chance to sort of ask your older self, say you 60, 70, near retirement, uh, one question, what would it be? What would you want to know about your about your life? Oh, about my life, I mean, First, it's, uh, I guess, focusing on, on, on science. I mean, just, you know, at the beginning of this conversation, I was telling you that what really got me into biology is how fast of an advancing field it is. Yeah. And I really, like, you can, you know, get a PhD in, in something and 50 years downstream, uh, everything that you know was completely disproven and a completely new field emerged out of it, you know? So I don't know, I would for sure ask my future self, like, you know, I know talking about my PhDs, like you know what happened, oncolytic biotherapies that maybe the new cure in cancer uh, or treatment in cancer. Uh, talking about defective viral genomes, I'm just so curious how far we can go. You know, will it become an antiviral treatment? Will we understand the question that you asked about virus evolution and what roles they play? So just tons of those type of questions I would for sure ask myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess. To be more general, so you were talking about specific viruses that have DVGs, but how many other viruses have them or has this not really been studied? So just thinking about our current pandemic, for example, do coronaviruses have DVGs? Um, Okay, has that been studied, like that whether they have a role or not? Yeah, so that's, so that's a great, great question. So Carolina uh, and some lab members wrote, wrote a couple of reviews kind of summarizing the field. And there's some nice tables in those reviews that really show that how predominant defective viral genomes are uh, in viruses in general. So of course, as I said at the beginning, there's the copyback DVGs, the deletion DVGs, this was this different type of DVGs. Right. But it pretty much looks like historically, if, if people really put the effort in finding them, you will find them. Uh, the question now, the other question you had is the role in pathogenesis. Um, I think, of course, it will be very virus specific. Uh, I think, uh, for example, in our context, we've seen kind of this like short term antiviral, long term uh, persistence, but it's very possible in other viruses, it will play different roles. Um, about your coronavirus question. So in other types of coronaviruses, uh, defective viral ge- genomes have been found. And actually recently, I think, I don't remember what lab it was from, but I think in January 2021, there's a paper that com- came out where they looked at MERS and, and uh, SARS-CoV-2, um, and they did find uh, defective viral genomes. But of course, it's a very initial, they just find them. The question is, does it play a role? But for sure, I have to admit, like having worked now, um, like four years with Carolina, uh, for sure, have a v- very kind of strong bias. Like a, uh, when I when I see like a presentation or I hear news about certain um, 
disease outcomes, I always wonder, do they have DVGs? If they have DVGs, what type, what role do they play? I mean, thinking about Corona, for example, right now, about how certain patients that are very young and very healthy still get very, very sick. And so, for example, I just immediately have to put the analogy to what we are seeing that in the infants that have very, very high viral load and very, very high level of DVGs at the peak of infection, they just do really bad in the hospital. And kind of thinking of that, I maybe those patients just generating tons of DVGs uh, at a later time point uh, in infection, or thinking about those uh, long COVID cases of patients feeling really bad for a really long time, thinking about persistence. I mean, it becomes more and more clear that many RNA viruses have the ability of persist. And of course, coming from our background and our research, we're very intrigued if DVGs could play a role in causing this persistence. Right, right. Um, yeah, so, and can you elaborate a little bit about this idea that you're thinking that maybe ultimately you, you could use this information as an antiviral therapy? What would that look like if you actually, if it was shown uh, as a way to actually treat either prevent infection or treat infection? What would that look like? Yeah, so um, this is something we always have thought about, discussed. I wouldn't say it's a major focus uh, of a lab, but there's lots of labs around the world that are currently uh, working on that. And I think that uh, I'm kind of uh, torn apart between optimism and pessimism. On one hand, I'm very optimistic because um, I feel like, I mean, everything all the data from our lab, at least, and the data from other labs indicates that it's really doing a great job at really shutting down virus replication. So it's, it's a very strong antiviral. Uh, my question would be the kind of my pessimistic side of the story is, again, back to the question you asked about virus evolution, will it really be kind of a competition thing? You know, so you add a defective uh, viral genome as an antiviral to a human being, and then will the virus potentially adapt to become resistant to this defective viral genome. And of course, one solution could be, can we give them the kind of cocktails of different types of species? And this would maybe go around that. Uh, so for sure, it's, it's a difficult question. And uh, also about your previous question about asking my future, my future self, I sure would ask that question, has it worked? And if it worked, why? And if it didn't work, why not? But for sure, so one thing we learned through, through our current project, our current paper, is that timing matters. And that concerns me a little bit because, of course, we have shown in, in cell culture, we have shown in mice, and even in the adult patients now, if DVGs are here since the beginning of the infection, it's a super antiviral. Like it really inhibits the replication. But if it's given at too late stages, or it doesn't do anything anymore, or even in worst-case scenario, it can actually worsen. The, the, the patient. So my question would be to, to MDs and clinicians is like, how early can you catch a patient? Because once they come to the hospital, my question is, is it maybe already too late or, um, or will it still be early enough to give it to them and it will have an inhibitory effect? So these are things that would have to be, you know, tested and, and evaluated. Yeah. So this is kind of similar to the monoclonal um, antibody therapy that we're all sort of a lot more aware of now it's yeah. sort of you need to get in as soon as you possibly can after yes. infection potentially to have a role cool um so i guess thinking generally then so you know we've all been sort of affected uh by this pandemic in the past year how has it affected you individually i guess as sort of a scientist but also as a person 
Yeah, so of course, of course, it has been you know dif difficult like for 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 a lot of people, but overall, I I think I cannot complain too much because at the end of the day, I think I was quite lucky because I was able to continue uh, doing what I love, which is doing science. Um, my um, my wife, uh, when we were back in UPenn, worked for UPenn, and when we moved to WashU, she was able to virtually continue working for UPenn, so she was also um able to to keep her job and then actually throughout the pandemic my wife was pregnant and in january we had our our, our first kid we had, we had a daughter oh, um and so i mean a lot of people were kind of like oh poor you guys to have this during the pandemic but on the other hand i feel like it kind of kept us sane because we're kind of so busy you know just helping my wife and and now taking care of, of my daughter and so it's kind of kept us sane i think that the most going on the negative side the most difficult part has been that so so my parents are back in austria and my wife's parents are back in honduras so we haven't seen them since the beginning of the pandemic so everything has been virtual which again i guess we shouldn't complain at least we have the virtual nowadays so we can catch up this way but still it's not the same you know as the human to human interaction in in real so this has been a, the, the tough part but overall i would say that um we have been we have been quite lucky with the circumstances. Yeah, yeah. So um, can you talk a little bit about how it was to have a baby and a young, like a young baby uh, during a pandemic? What was that like? I'm, I'm personally glad I, I have an 11 year old and a 14 year old and I was yeah. glad that I didn't have to deal with like labor delivery <laughs> or like young kids yeah, at school. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it, 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 was, it was for sure, uh, for sure challenging i have to say i mean we, we we anyway since the beginning of the pandemic you know followed like you know cdc guidelines and, and all these things but and on top of that i'm a virologist and on top of that i wasn't about to be father so i think for sure we were very on edge and a bit slightly on the paranoiac side so we were like i think it was only me who was going to all the stores I was wearing masks. I was, you know, coming home and really behaving like I would be an NMD in a hospital, like, you know, washing myself and cleaning myself. So I was really, really, really careful. Um, and um, yeah, I think we just, we just, you know, did, did the best out of situation. And then we were also lucky because in St. Louis, um, spouses had the right to be with um, their the pregnant spouse in the hospital. And we have heard that across the United States and in some other countries, you couldn't do that. So in that sense, we felt really lucky because it's just really difficult to do it alone. So we were just both like so happy we were able to do that. Uh, but it was just a weird experience. I mean, we we're both, my, my wife was wearing a mask. I was wearing a mask. Everybody was wearing a mask. So it was just, it was very surreal, very strange. Um, but you know, we did the best we could out of the situation. And then now that, um, I guess your baby is getting, you know, three months or so, yep. what do you, yep. what is your sort of position or what are you going to be doing for like daycare? Or are you going to stay, is she going to, is your wife going to stay home with the baby for a while? Cause that's also another big vision for people. Um, how do you deal with that? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's anyway a tough decision, and on top of that, with the pandemic, now it's it's we had really long discussions with my wife, and and so um, we thought personally the best thing was so I'm I'm of course still still working in the lab, and and my wife is gonna 
in May after three months, whenever she's going to be three months, going to go back to virtually work for UPenn. Okay. And then we're going to send her to daycare. Of course, I mean, I think especially my wife is still very, very nervous about like COVID-19. Um, however, I, th- I personally feel like most, 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 most studies have indicated that infants are not like the major targeted population, or at least severe disease targeted population. So I, I think it will be fine, but for sure it's very nerve wracking. It's again, nerve wracking already anyway. Uh, but on top of that, there is, there is, um, there's COVID-19 that doesn't help, but yeah, we thought as a, you know, as a couple that that's the best decision to, to, to make. Yeah. Um, and then I guess, um, I, I mean, it sounds like you, you play, you used to play tennis, but have you, during this pandemic, have you picked up any new ways to sort of keep yourself safe, but at the same time, keep yourself sane, like get outside or this kind of a thing? What have you been doing in your, in your so-called spare time? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so unfortunately, like no sports, like back, back in the days, like before I was playing tennis and soccer and going to workouts. And I really, uh, I guess, shame on me. (laughs) I didn't do any workouts during the, during the pandemic. But again, I think really what kept us, I mean, again, I was saying that love family and friends were kind of concerned about the fact we're going through this during a pandemic, but actually I think the, the, the pregnancy of my wife actually helped us because we were like, so I was like, so focused on like helping my wife, uh, making sure she's healthy and she's good. Uh, preparing for daughter like so we were so busy just preparing 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 that we didn't really have time to pick up other hobbies or think about other things uh yeah yeah once you have the baby you're super busy anyways (laughs) yeah exactly exactly so I guess as a virologist, um, maybe you can finish out by talking a little bit about your views on vaccination. So I know, so you know, for a long time, I would talk to people about sort of safety precautions, but now I think the big, big thing is vaccination. And how, how do you think about that yourself? How do you uh, talk about it with friends, uh, coworkers, family? Yeah. Um, how do you help people think about sort of the, the pros and cons of vaccination against, against COVID? Yeah, I mean, again, as as a virologist, I was immediately on, on board. Um, I guess I could not resist, and of course, had to do a lot of reading and stuff. I mean, whenever the concept of mRNA uh, vaccines came up, uh, I was like reading reviews, and just not not only because I was like worried or anything, just I was really interested as a virologist. Yeah. How are they made? What's the concept? What is known about it? So of course I was on board really quickly. So I got, um, I got vaccinated really quickly. And then, um, my, my wife is not a scientist, but I'm a virologist. She has me. So I also convinced her yeah. very easily. So she also got the vaccine, uh, really fast. Um, uh, yeah, but also talking in terms of like family, um, in, in France, there was of course a lot of like, uh, skepticism about the speed, how everything was done. And I have to admit, even as a virologist, on one hand, I was like amazed by how fast we worked as a community. But on the other hand, I also understand the general population um, that they are concerned about just how, how fast everything happened. And, and it's very interesting because something very similar is happening right now in Europe, where my family is and here in the United States. So in Europe is the, the case of AstraZeneca, yeah. um, which a lot of family and friends called me and were like, hey, there's like this... Uh, 
minimalistic chance of block clot. Should I take it or not take it? Again, I know it's a very personal opinion, but I was always telling him I would take it because if it's if you it's just looking, it's not even like virology, it's a numbers game. Yeah. If you look at numbers, I think you're better off taking it. And same now with Johnson Johnson United States um, with the block clot, same I think has been six cases in the entire United States. Um, so again, I'm more leaning towards telling people to take it. Uh, but again, it, it, I understand it, that it's, it's a tough decision. You know, I mean, it's people, people are scared, people are worried. And, and I think if, if the, the pandemic, I think has taught anything to us as a community, as I'm talking about a virology community is communication, 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 communication. I really feel like, you know, bachelors and PhDs and postdocs, we should be trained in communication. It should always be as important as being good scientists. Because I think a lot of uh, a lot of things have been miscommunication. So, for example, AstraZeneca, they are of course this issue of the blood clots, but I think they're also in a lot of trouble because their communication team did not do a really good job. And so, I think really we we just have to really emphasize for the future that we have to be able to explain things in a way that the general public can understand. Well, of course, they will be skeptical about it. Right, right. And then can you tell us a little bit about for your your family um, in Europe and then your wife's family in South America, right? Is that right? Central um, America, yeah. Central America. America. Um, what has the pandemic been like for them and how, how has it been to sort of see the different flow, as it were, of the pandemic in these different places? I mean, both sides there have been, of course, you know, frustrations. So starting with Austria, for example, I think what was really frustrating is that uh, I think the the government uh, did a really good job in the first wave. So really, Austria was like one of the best countries in, in the world to handle the the pandemic. And and then just you know you know I don't want to also like point fingers too much because I don't want to be in the shoes of the politicians having to make all these decisions so yeah. fast. But yeah. I feel like the decisions kind of degraded over time. It, it took too long to make decisions. They were not sure about themselves. And because of that, the next waves were much worse. I think that has been frustrating my family a lot, how it was handled so well at the beginning, and then it just went out of control. Um, and then from a Honduran perspective, um, it's, of course, very challenging, too, because it's a very poor country. So there's very few testing. So I think if you look at the numbers, they're not that bad off. But in reality, there's most probably lots and lots and lots of cases. And... Of course, the vaccine rollout is very, very slow uh, in countries like Honduras. And and again, I think that's something that has been discussed uh, in the past weeks about like, you know, governments like the US, Canada, Europe to start thinking long term. Of course, we have to make sure to vaccinate our own citizens first, but also try to kind of anticipate that it's in our own advantage to make sure to get vaccines to all the countries around the world to stop this pandemic. So I think we have to do a lot of like teamwork and team thinking here to resolve these issues. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, thanks so much. Sebastian hopes that the identification of virus and host proteins involved in DVG generation will help to develop new safe and effective ways to treat and prevent RSV infection, as well as improve our understanding of the fundamental role of DVGs in virus evolution or as potential antiviral therapies. This has been Let's Meet the Virologist, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Arissa Thackray, and thanks for listening. 
You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, and other podcasts or at lmtv.podbean.com.